Welcome back, everybody. Now, before the break, we had a question talking about, you know, how can people who have different viewpoints work together on these things? And I think this next panel is going to be some of that discussion. We're going to have a, a very open and civil discussion here by folks with a variety of viewpoints. They'll agree with some areas. They'll agree with each other on some areas. They'll disagree with me and, some, and each other in some areas. And we're kind of looking forward to that debate. We've all, we've, we've built this as a discussion not a celebration, this whole event today. And uh, I think this is, this is part of it we want to hear. I'm really thrilled with this panel. Uh, I, have to, I have to tell you, we've got some, uh, some really terrific minds uh, up here when it comes to dealing with issues of poverty and inequality. Uh, first up here is Henry Gascon. Uh, he is the director uh, of program and policy development for United Ways of California. Uh, he is certainly on the front lines of dealing with uh, poverty. Uh, before that, he was a policy analyst for the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, and director of InPower Los Angeles. So you've got a, certainly got an in, insight uh, into what's going on on uh, poverty issues in Los Angeles area and statewide. Uh, next to him is uh, um, uh, Ambassador Michael Lawson, who is the president and CEO of the Los Angeles Urban League. Uh, another group that's done terrific work uh, in dealing with poverty issues and a variety of issues uh, in here in Los Angeles area. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Uh, before that, he worked as a partner with Arp Slate, Meager, and F F Flom? Flom. Flom. Uh, out there, okay. Uh, at any rate, he was a partner there, and before that, he, was, uh, he served as uh, an ambassador to the International Civil Agent, Aviation Agency. So we're happy to have you with us uh, today as well. And then lastly is Will Swain, uh, president of the California Policy Center, who spent uh, three decades in journalism before moving into policy. He was the editor, he's formerly the editor of Watchdog.org uh, and vice president of journalism at the Franklin Center for Government and Public Integrity. Uh, the California Policy Center is a terrific organization, deals with a variety of issues. So it's a think tank, if you will. Uh, deals with a number of the issues, in particularly in education and welfare and things that we've been dealing with, criminal justice reform, so we're happy to have him here as well. We're going to let you start it off, Henry, and uh, we'll have a couple of comments and then we'll have some discussion. That's why you're there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael, and my deep appreciation for the Cato Institute for gathering all of us here on a, on a Saturday morning here in L.A. I know it's a little drizzly. I know traffic is a little touch and go, so just thanks so much for the invitation and for the warm welcome for, from all of you. Um, so I'm Henry Gascone. I'm, the, uh, I'm with United Ways of California. And for those of you who may not be familiar with United Way is that, you know, we're one of the oldest nonprofits in the United States. We were founded during the Reconstruction period, uh, during, the, during the 1870s in the United States, very famously in Denver. And our mission is to help, uh, our mission here in California is to help improve the well-being of low-income families by improving their health, education, and financial stability results. And um, I'm going to talk about the real cost measure, which is the fourth financial stability study that we have released for the state um, since 2015. Um, so Michael was kind enough to share some of the findings from the supplemental poverty measure, which really incorporates kind of the, a lot of the public assistance um, that's being used to uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of define poverty. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about a kind of a different metric. And the first thing I actually want to ask you, and we'll be a little bit interactive, is how is the official poverty measure defined? Any guesses? 
GDP? Not on GDP, actually. Any other guesses? It's actually based on the cost of food. And it was based on the cost of food during Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. And if you're going to declare a war on something, you need some sort of an instrument to measure it by. So very famously, an official within his administration named Molly Orshansky in the Social, in Social Security Administration looked at the cost of food during the 50s and 60s because that was one of the biggest household expenses for many families back then. So the official poverty measure doesn't take into account the cost of housing, childcare, healthcare, transportation, and other basic needs. So I think we need a better poverty measure or self-sufficiency measure to describe what it really costs to live in California. Um, so the real cost measure um, focuses on working households throughout the entire state. And we calculated up to 1,600 household budgets ranging from one adult in a household all the way up to 20 adults in a household to find out how much it would cost for them to live. And we did this for all 58 counties in California. One of the other deficiencies of the official poverty measure is that it doesn't take into account geographical differences. So it, takes into, it treats poverty exactly the same as it does from Mississippi to Iowa and then California. And we all know that the cost of living is very different in all three of those states. And one of the great virtues about the real cost measure is that we have neighborhood level data through what the census calls public use microdata areas. I just call them neighborhood clusters. And what they just do is consolidate neighborhoods to get a sample size of at least 100,000 uh, people to make it statistically significant. So we have this wonderful, rich neighborhood-level data so we can actually find out not only what the real cost measure looks like in LA County, but throughout Santa Monica, Alhambra, Palos Verdes, and other areas that we live in each and every day. So the real cost measure is primarily calculated, uh, in fact, exclusively calculated based upon publicly available government data. So we're not making this stuff up, right? So we use HUD data to look at the cost of housing. And what the real cost measure does, it establishes kind of the bare bones budget. What's the minimum a household needs to earn in order to survive in California? So we look at, um, section, we look, we look at uh, fair market rent rates, which is kind of the 40th percentile of gross, of gross rents. It's also used to determine the, the cost of Section 8 housing. So we know that cost of, of housing could certainly be 40, 50% higher than that. Uh, we look at the consumer expenditure survey to look at the average cost for transportation and healthcare. We look at, uh, also look at HUD data to look at the cost of food. So, and then we've gotten pretty good at this in terms of being able to incorporate taxes. We incorporate payroll taxes into, it, into this. Since we're looking at uh, working households, we're looking at uh, state local taxes and the impact of childcare and childcare tax credits. Um, in our calculation of the, of the real cost measure. So very broadly that we found um, in LA County alone, a family of four based on two adults, one preschooler and one school aged child would have to earn at least $95,000 in income to make ends meet. That is way higher than what the official poverty measure calls for. So let's take a look at what the income looks like for a family of four below the real cost measure. So on average, they get about 50,000 in wages. And one of the things that we've learned is that how these families work really varies from family to family, especially if, you, especially if you're below the real cost measure. It could be two working adults working full time. It could be one adult working one to three jobs 
you know, at any given time throughout the day or throughout the regular season, right? So one of the things that we're really sensitive to is how the calendar year really impacts families in terms of the labor market. So for those of you who, for those families who are in retail, for example, their hours and their pay usually goes up during the holiday season. And we're coming upon that time now as we're during holiday shopping. However, when January comes along, those retail workers aren't needed as much. So they're asked to reduce their hours and their pay. So they're really dependent upon a cyclical income throughout the calendar year. So it's not just a consistent income that these families earn, it's really trying to figure out how to get ahead, how to make sure they're gonna go ahead and pay the, the rent from month to month. And if we take a look at the role of public assistance, we see on average that they get about, a, about $100 in, in LA County for CalWORKs, which is our, our version of the Temporary Assistance for Needy Family Programs. And they get about almost $2,000 from the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is one of the most successful anti-poverty programs that we have here in the United States. But even if the family of four below the real cost measure was to able to maximize all of their income and all of, the all of the benefits that are available to them, they would still face a significant gap to make ends meet. In fact, in our analysis, we find that this, this family of four would have to earn at, at least another $43,000 in income to make ends meet. So how do they do it? And that question is really hard, and it really varies from family to family. They try to negotiate with their landlord on any given month. They might skip out on food costs. They might uh, skip out on school supplies or their prom for their children. It really varies, and it's really difficult. So one of the things I want to emphasize is that it's not only the financial costs that these families have to go through every day, but it's also the psychological and the emotional costs that these families endure. So let's take a look at the cost of living from four different areas in California using that same household type of two adults, one preschooler, and one school-aged child. And you'll notice that two of the primary barriers for helping these families get, uh, make ends meet are the cost of housing and the cost of childcare. So look at Fresno County, for example. Look at how the cost of childcare, assuming this family was using, was using a licensed childcare facility, is actually greater than the cost of housing in Fresno County. In LA County and Orange County, you can actually just see the high cost of living and the high cost of childcare. But if this family of four was living in Contra Costa County, one of the more affluent areas of California, this family of four would need to earn at least $120,000 in income. It's really hard. Right? And you can actually just see how the geographical differences really vary throughout the entire state. If we were to kind of do a deeper dive in terms of LA County, and let's take a look at different family sizes, right? And we've realized that, that the real cost measure really varies upon your family size and by geography. So if it's two adults in LA County, it would pretty much need $54,000 to make ends meet at, at the very minimum. Notice the big, the big thing that's missing there is the cost of childcare. Look at the difference between the last two family types with two adults, one preschool, and one school-aged child. And as those kids grow up to become a school-aged child and a teenager, notice how the cost of childcare reduces on average. But notice how the cost of food goes up because teenagers get quite hungry, <laughs> right? So um, they're more likely to go ahead and uh, empty out the fridge at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, more than a toddler and an 8-year-old. But you can actually just see how the family household budget goes from $95,000 from the family of four with a preschool and a school-aged child to uh, about $83,000 once those kids grow up, primarily because of the cost of childcare. So 
we've all been impacted by childcare, you know, depending, regardless of where you fall within the real cost measure. We know that many families have been displaced by the labor market. Uh, they've, they've had to kind of change working in a, in, a, in a work office environment, going to a virtual environment, and now they've had to take care of their kids over the past year during the pandemic as well. So there's multiple uh, responsibilities that have come about during the pandemic, and you know, we're going to be looking forward to seeing a lot of the census data that comes out over the past couple of years just in terms of the impact of childcare, particularly on low-income families. So Michael was talking about the uh, impact of the, uh, uh, of the supplemental poverty measure. It's actually not officially enacted. It's just a supplemental study that's actually by, available by the federal government as well. So it's not binding, but the official poverty measure is. So according to our real cost measure, however, when you take into account the cost of housing, healthcare, transportation, and other basic needs, we find that up to 33% of families in California don't earn enough to meet basic needs. That's a third of the states. That's a lot. And when we quantify that, that's over 3.5 million households. So we're kind of reimagining what really poverty looks like and what it, what it means to get ahead. Right? And when we look at the data a little bit more closely, since our focus is obviously on working households, we find that up to 97% of families have at least one working adult in the household. But how that works really varies to family in terms of part-time jobs and full-time jobs. So uh, here's a big finding from LA County. In LA County, we find it has a, one of the highest uh, rates below the real cost measure in the entire state. We find that up to 40% of households in LA County don't earn enough to make ends meet. If this isn't a public health emergency, I don't know what is. But when we quantify that, that's over 1.1 million households. So let's take a look at what the, what the real cost measure looks like throughout the entire state. Here you see a map of California. The dark brown areas indicate that there's a higher rate of families below the real cost measure. The lighter area areas indicate that they're fair off. And you can actually see the high degree of struggle that we see in many parts of the Central Valley and in many parts of Los Angeles and Riverside and San Bernardino counties just by this visual map. And the two extremes that we see throughout the entire state are only 11% of households in the community of San Ramon and Danville, in, right in the heart of San Francisco, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, are struggling to make ends meet, compared to 80% of families in the community of East Vernon, right in the heart of South Los Angeles. So let's take a look at LA a little bit more deeply in our map. And you can actually see the dark degree of struggle in South LA, many parts of the San Fernando Valley, and parts of Lancaster, Lancaster and Palmdale. And the two extremes here, 12% of households in Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, and Hermosa Beach, which is one neighborhood cluster, according to the US Census Bureau, are struggling to make ends meet, compared once again to the community of East Vernon. But you can actually just see you know, how large LA County is. It would probably be the, be the eighth largest in the union if it was its own sovereign state. Not that I'm advocating for that, right? But it's huge, right? And there's 69 of these neighborhood clusters throughout LA County. Um, if we take a look at what it looks like by ethnicity, this is actually a really uh, interesting story. And you know, our research really complements a lot of the other research that's out there in terms of black households and Latino households struggle the most, where we see 58% of Latino households in LA County don't earn enough to make ends meet, and 43% of black households. So this is the percentage rate within each of these population groups, but let's change the story around to look at what it looks like by volume. And this might surprise people. The second highest group behind Latinos who are struggling are white households. 
and it speaks to us in terms of what the population di uh, diversity looks like throughout LA County in terms, of the in terms of the strength. So we know that Latinos are now the largest population in California, but consistently that we find is that white households come rank second in terms of the volume, in terms of who's struggling to make ends meet. Another highly vulnerable community are single moms, right? And we're finding that up to almost 80% of single moms in LA County fall below the real cost measure. So we know the obstacles that they face every day in terms of not only being the breadwinner for their household, but being their entire emotional support system as well. Making sure these, bids, these kids are ready to go to school in the morning. Making sure that they get their homework done in the afternoon and are tucked in, in bed at night. Because so many of these single moms are working two to three different part-time jobs throughout the day, it's almost impossible for them to fulfill all of these um, uh, tasks in the labor market and at home. So what they often do is they rely on their other kids or other family members to take care of their kids when they're unable to. And this is often the case with childcare. You know, many families below the real cost measure simply can't afford, afford the cost of childcare, so they regrettably have to rely on other, other children and other family members and neighbors to take care of kids, especially in after school hours. Um, so here's a big, a big barrier that really shines out with our data in terms of um, the, the role of childcare is we find almost 60% of households with children between the ages of zero and five fall below the real cost measure. So this just basically speaks to the cost of childcare and what we're seeing, and we quantify that, that's about 204, almost 250,000 households um, throughout LA County alone. So to wrap up, put a big picture context into this in terms of how the real cost measure really complements with what's going on with the overall broad economy, is that since 1984, um, California's GDP, which is gross domestic product, the value of all goods and services produced in the entire state, has increased by 155%. But notice how median household earnings has pretty much flattened out um, during that same amount of time, only 11%. And I think if we were to go back to the mid-70s or late-70s, I think this chart would look exactly the same. And what this tells us is that the middle class hasn't gotten a raise in at least four decades. But the price of goods and services continues to increase, particularly the cost of housing, childcare, transportation, and other basic needs. You know, gas alone is almost $5 a gallon here in, 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 some, parts of, uh, in some parts of California, right? Coming from LAX, you would probably see that. So um, this is a, a big gap. And you know, I'm so glad that the Cato Institute is, ra is raising attention and by bringing people together. And that's what we try to do here at United Ways, is to bring people um, from all different fa facets of life, um, from housing developers, from policy researchers, to childcare providers, together into the same room to tackle our larger societal problems. And Pete Manzo, our president and CEO, was kind enough to go ahead and share me some more national data that goes even way back to the end of World War II. And we find that our, our productivity as a nation has been completely off the charts, 260% um, in terms of the value of our work and everything else. But when we look, when we look at the impact of hourly compensation, Notice how that complements a previous chart where hourly compensation is pretty much flattened out since that same amount of time. So um, the real cost measure, it's available on our website. It's unitedwayca.org slash real cost. We don't want this study just to be something that sits on a bookshelf. This is a real life shared experience that many families go through each and every day. 
So we want this. Uh, we want people to really engage on this on an individual level or on a collective level. And one of my favorite ways to do this is as a financial literacy tool, right? So if you have your kid coming at 3 o'clock in the afternoon after football practice, opens up the refrigerator, raids everything out, the rest of the family comes back at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, is looking around each other, I'm like, where's dinner? This could be a general intervention opportunity for us to raise the cost of living to our, to our, to our kids, help them going on the path for financial literacy so that they can actually go ahead and become productive, um, productive members of society. Thanks so much. Ambassador? Oh. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Michael Lawson, president of Los Angeles Urban League. Uh, I was going to bring my slides, but uh, you took them all. I, <laughs> I wish I could do slides like that. Um, the Los Angeles Urban League is a civil rights organization that has been around for 100 years. Literally, we were formed in 1921. The primary goal of the Urban League system is economic empowerment. So what we are talking about today is right in the wheelhouse of what we have been trying to do for the last 100 years. Um, we've had some successes. We haven't had the successes that we need, as you all know. That's why we're here. Uh, but I want to talk about just a few things, and I, and, and I hope that we can uh, start a dialogue about some of the issues that we have to address. Um, one of the goals that I have been the president of the Los Angeles Urban League since uh, November of 2017. Um, one of the goals that I have set for this organization is to rebuild Greenwood, the district of Tulsa that was destroyed in three days of whites rioting uh, in 1921. The, the importance of that is that Greenwood was known as the Black Wall Street. And it wasn't the only city in the United States that had that, uh, that, 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 that title. But between 1919 and 1921, there were a rash of riots across the country. Uh, I was born in Arkansas, and uh, my sister sent me uh, a note saying, you have to read this book. It's called, um, <clears throat> excuse me, all of, all of a sudden I've forgotten the name of the book, but it will come back to me. Uh, but it is a, it's, it's, uh, it is a book about the years of riots that occurred during that period of time. Um, and when you look at the devastation that was created by that, all of you in this room know that the, 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 the thing that's worse than, than, than a low return is negative returns. And that's what we had. And that's what we've had since then. 
Um, there's been no reparations. Even in Tulsa, they didn't even allow the schools to talk about the riots. Um, and you take that type of activity, that type of action, that type of, of malfeasance, and you multiply it, and you see what the black and brown communities of this country have been forced to face without the benefit of any reparations whatsoever. But that's not the only issue. Um, New York Times ran this story, uh, a, a series of stories called the 1619 Project. And the one article that really struck me, because I had never heard this before, was one of the articles that said that the economic system that we have in the United States that we call capitalism is only one form of capitalism. And the, the form of capitalism that we have is a form of capitalism that is based on slavery. And I, th I, I thought about it, and I said, you know, I was an economics major in college. This wasn't taught to me, that there were other forms of capitalism. Capitalism was what we have, but it's not. So a couple of examples. Um, the, when you look at, well, the gig economy was a big issue, or is a big issue right now. And one of the things that I was working on uh, through the Urban League was how do we get the gig workers the, the health care benefits that uh, they're entitled to, uh, or they, that they should get. Let me not say they're entitled to, they should get. And the focus that I was getting, the, the response that I was getting back from the, from the elected officials was, well, it has to go through the employer. And the only reason that was their focus was because that's how the system was set up in this country. The enslaved people could, had to get all of their benefits through the slave owner, period. And that's the model that we have. Hobby Lobby, they can deny their employees certain benefits because they're the slave owner and they can make that choice. There's nothing, in, there's nothing out there that says that has to be the case. That's the, that's the system that we have adopted. Um, and when you, and there's so many aspects of this that impact everything that we do. So the employers now, the slave owners, if you will, see themselves as not having to worry about their employees, how, how they live. The only thing they need to focus on is the next quarter's earnings. But the fact of the matter is that the businesses, the slave owners, the, the, they benefit from all of these things that we've been talking about. Take one example, education. And I'll give you two, um, two examples of this. One is Apple. Um, some years ago, New York Times did an article about Apple and Foxcom 
and, and how, how the, the, the workers in Foxconn in Asia were in this, they, they were li living under horrible conditions um, and they were not being, you know, not being paid a, a, a reasonable wage and so on and so forth. Huge six-page article in the New York Times. It was one of the five people that read to the end. <laughs> and uh, in the last few paragraphs, they said Apple could have brought all of that manufacturing activity back to the US, paid everybody a, a, at least the minimum wage required uh, in, in most states in the United States, and they could still make three to $400 profit per farm. But they said they wouldn't do it because the, the, in the US, they wouldn't have access to the engineers that they have in Asia. If they, if they wanted to change something on the assembly line, they could have 20 people there figuring out how to do it, and they didn't have that talent here. Why? Because we are not investing in education. And why are we not investing in education? Because we think that it is something that the individuals need to do, that the families need to do. The businesses don't have to do that, except that it has an impact. When the HB1 visas come around, everybody's running to get their HB1 visa employee. Why? Because these people have educational skills that we don't have. And why is that? Because we're not funding it. We're not financing it. And we're forcing our employees to get it. I remember having a conversation with one of my partners at the firm about the cost of, of the tax, raising taxes for public schools. And he said, I don't care about public schools because my kids go to private school. And I said, your secretary didn't go to private school, and she can read English. And you didn't have to pay for that. The primary beneficiary of public education is the business community. The other example, and I'll tell you this one, and I wasn't supposed to tell it because it was uh, when I was at the International Civil Aviation Organization, I was having drinks with a representative from Boeing, and he drank too much and told me the story. Uh, that when Boeing was building the 787, they decided to build it in, in, in um, what's the states, uh, 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 the states, right-to-work states, excuse me, so that they could basically stick a thumb in the eye of the unions. The... They built one plant in South Carolina. And after they built the plant, they started recruiting people to work there. And it wasn't until then that they realized that the literacy rate in South Carolina was so low, they could not let these people into the factory. It cost them more to train the local population than it would have cost to use union labor. But they didn't want to say anything about that because they're wedded to the system that's based on a slavery model. We don't have to do anything that, that doesn't benefit us directly. 
And so you combine all of these things and you see that there's a systemic mismatch here. That if the, if the beneficiaries of education are the, is the business community, the business community should be, be financing this. But right now, we're letting Asia finance our, our engineers. And we're trying to poach them after they, they get their education here in the US. So how do you address this? I don't have the answer to that question. But I would implore you to think outside of the box. All of the issues, all of the statistics that you just heard are, are correct and true. And the question is, how do we address it? What are the, the, the factors that need to be changed in order to create a system that, that, that mimics the Black Wall Street that we had in Greenwood and other cities? Um, I don't have the answers to this. This is what we're trying to do. The, the, the model for the Los Angeles Urban League is economic empowerment of underserved communities. We have been here fighting for this for the last 100 years. I hope that we are not fighting for this for another 100 years. Thank you. Thank you. Will, if you could finish us up here and uh, yes. then we'll take it to the audience. Um, I'm going to present the opposite view that uh, business ownership and capital formation are not slavery. They are absolutely antipodal. Uh, I won't get into a history of the Civil War, which is about the triumph of capitalism, freedom, and free markets over a dictatorial, authoritarian slave system. Um, it was a uh, triumph of early re the Republican Party. I'm not a Republican because I'm a constitutionalist. Um, and um, and I, I think the most important thing to understand about California is that we do operate in a kind of a slave society, one that's dominated by people who believe that more government regulation, less, less freedom in the marketplace is the real answer to improving the quality of life. And when the solutions they impose on the rest of us, who are their plantation workers, to carry on with your metaphor um, or analogy, um, when those solutions don't work, when they actually make things worse, they double down. They, they make the situation worse iteratively every single year. If you want to know why California screwed up, you don't have to look at the plantation system of the antebellum South. You can look at the supermajority legislature, which is run by the Democratic Party and controlled by whom? Government unions in the, in the, in the state of California. California has 12% of the nation's population, and we have 25% of its state and local union members. Those unions, the five top unions in California, you probably know them, cops, firefighters, teachers, and SEIU and AFSCME and their various affiliates, bring in somewhere in the neighborhood of $1 billion per year in dues revenue. $1 billion. There is no center-right, no free market group in California that is contributing a $1 billion every year to pure politics. But unions do in California. And they use this money in a peculiarly California sort of way. Well, it's not unique to California. Illinois, New York, Maryland, Connecticut, New Jersey, if you know those states, you're familiar with the problem. They use this money, the union leaders do in California, to elect uh, public officials from Main Street all the way up to Sacramento. 
And those officials, once elected, turn around, they know who brought them to the dance, and they return the favor. I was uh, raised a nice Catholic, moderate, democratic family in southern Orange County. Uh, wanted to be a priest, went to uh, USC, where of all things, I fell into the Communist Party. I, not kidding. Um, it was a rare story, but uh, uh, I joined the Communist Party, and my analysis back then started to shift when I started to work in, in democratic politics. I have uh, my phone on, sorry, and it's connected to my hearing aids, and that's my father calling. Sorry about that. So embarrassing. All right. We did decide that was at 5? Five? 5 o'clock. Thank you. Good. We've got time then. I'll talk until 4.55. So um, I started to work in democratic politics as my views shifted, and I started to work for a guy in uh, South Orange County who's sort of famous down there, a Democrat. And, um, you know, here I am. I'm a, still kind of just coming out of my Marxist phase, and I'm working on his political campaign. And he asks me to join him in a discussion with the leaders of the local police union. And I said, you've got to be kidding me, man. We don't make cause with the man. You know, we don't make, uh, we don't make arrangements with the jackbooted thugs of authoritarian capitalism. No way. And he said, dude, just shut up. Drive your Volvo and go to the police union headquarters and, and just watch and learn. So I sit down, a little happy talk with the police, and I'm just, I am fuming that we're meeting with these jackbooted thugs. And this guy, who was a member of the Berkeley Free Speech Movement and uh, Students for a Democratic Society, a friend of Tom Hayden's. Um, and uh, friendly talk, police, my boss. And uh, they say, well, let's get to business. We've got a contract coming up. We expect you to approve it. It's a substantial raise. We think we've proved our loyalty. What was Larry's response? Larry's response was, not a problem. We get out in the car, and I said, what the hell just happened? These guys are far right-wing, jackbooted thugs who beat up you know, the poor and black people and student, student activists like me. Why are you doing this? And he said, if you want to get elected, you got to do business with the cops, the firefighters, the teachers. That's how you get elected. So this is the software that really runs California politics. It's not a slave system run by business owners who are, in fact, fleeing from this state for a host of reasons. It's not the business class that has made the cost of living in California so exorbitant that I was intrigued by the, the numbers that showed how much taxes the poor have to pay. Why is that? Why is the cost of living so high in California? Why do we have not just the highest tap, ta top tax marginal rate, why do we have the highest taxes all the way down to your local corner convenience store? Why is that? It's because public employee unions, like the one I just described, have persuaded local elected officials they help get into office to raise their salaries, raise their benefits. I love uh, so much of this, this Cato plan. It points out, among other things, the cost of public employee benefits, the cost of pensions, the cost of taxes, Virtually every item in here, virtually every, not every, every item in here is a problem, which Cato has, I think, brilliantly outlined, which has a solution in reforming the problem of government union power. How do you do that when you confront a group that every year brings in $900 million, a billion dollars per year, every election cycle, nearly $2 billion, all of it spent on state and local races? How do you combat that? You cannot outfundraise those kinds of people. 
There's nobody in this room who can write a check that's going to help guys like me get to the $2 billion magic number every election cycle. Not going to happen. So when we end up with a Democratic supermajority, we end up with police who are unreformable, untouchable. I thought it was fascinating, recent news item, and then I'll, I promise to cut to the chase here. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has doubled down, of course, on vaccine, van uh, sorry, vaccine mandates, or vaccine mandates, if you prefer. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I, I am fully vaccinated and eagerly awaiting my bonus round. But having said that, whether you agree with a mandate or you don't, the fact is, is that the governor just went to federal court to try to get them to lift the mandate for one group in California. Anybody know that group? Pardon? Well, yeah, probably himself. No, for the prison guards. Why? The prison guards gave him $2 million in the run-up to his, his uh, recall. They gave him $2 million. The prison guards union rank and file are conservative Republicans, many of whom identify with Trump and a few of whom identify with QAnon. And these are the guys backing Governor Newsom. Why? Because Newsom knows how to play the game the same way my boss did. I want to end with this, and then we can get into some of the details of the research, I hope, here. But um, when I first got into California Policy Center, I was the communications director. And in that role, I was also kind of the government affairs guy. We had a tremendous report on how to reduce the public finance obligations under pensions and employee costs and that sort of thing. It was a brilliantly written piece by my colleague Edward Ring. And um, I made a few contacts up in Sacramento, and I walked into the office of a, a Democrat from Southern California. Let's leave it there. I will say that his personal pronouns are he and him. And that I went into his office, and I asked him, I, 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 you know, I'd already presented him with the paper, and I said I would come by and meet him, and he was gracious, gave me a cup of coffee. We sat down, and he said, so, tell me what you want me to do. And I said, well, I'd like you to carry a, a bill that really puts into place these kinds of practical changes in how pensions are calculated, who bears the risk, and if you do that, you're going to reduce the cost of living for poor Californians immediately. They are the people who are paying the cost of lousy schools. They're the people who are paying the higher taxes. Hey, if I have to pay an extra dollar for taxes every week, it's not material. But for somebody who's making $30,000 or $35,000 a year, that, that becomes a big number. It's a material factor in their lives. A dollar is not a good example, of course, here in California. And he said, Will, 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 let me stop you there. We are three minutes into the conversation at this point. Will, let me stop you right there, he says. Um, I've read your report. It's brilliant. Like, this is great, from your lips to God's ears. But you cannot ask me to go to war with the government unions in California armed with your white paper. Not going to work. Um, the lesson in my life, whether I was a Marxist, a Democrat, a conservative, a libertarian, whatever phase of my life, when I have tried to reform a thing, and I guarantee that anybody in this room who has tried to reform something that ran up against the problem of government union knows exactly what I'm talking about. The problem in California is not the business class. The, California, the problem in California is not the right to work states in the South. The problem in California is government unions that control virtually every elected office and don't give a damn what you think if it runs counter to their, to their issues. Um, I could talk all day about this, as you could probably tell. So I will stop at this moment with respect for my friends and the uh, following conversation that I'm sure is going to be awesome. All right. If between our three speakers we haven't annoyed everybody out here in the audience, uh, we're doing something wrong. Uh, so, uh, so I hope we will be able to do that. Uh, and we'll take your questions in just a moment. Uh, I, I kind of want to 
start off with kind of a, a broader picture questions here. I think everybody uh, you know, agreed that the, the struggle's uphill on, on these sort of things. I guess my, my mic's not working. Um, There's the, the kind of an uphill structure because the power imbalance in our society is not working, is not right, depending on what it is. Whether we're talking about structural racism, whether we're talking about the union power, whether we're talking about general indifference to the plight of the poor, do we all sort of recognize that there's an uphill struggle that's going on in there? And I think all three of you, all three of these things are problems that we face in California and in America. How do we, from the bottom up, fight that? And Mr. Ambassador, I'd like to start with you because the Urban League has a history of struggle on these things. But I'd like to hear from everybody. How do we organize from the bottom up to change things in society for the better? Um, thank you for this. Um, um, if, if I had the answer, we would have implemented it already. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it is a battle, and it, and it is complicated. Um, I was uh, just saying that uh, I, one of the roles that I played was uh, I was chair of the Board of Airport Commissioners for Los Angeles World Airports. Uh, so we had to deal with the, 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 the unions at, at the airport. Everything you said about the unions in California is absolutely true. I am not suggesting that, that that's not the case, uh, but it's not so much the system as much as it is the people running the systems. Um, how we change it, uh, it, it it's, it's going to take uh, a significant amount of, 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 of willpower and, and brain power from the people in this room. Uh, but one of the things that um, we, one of the reasons the unions had as much power as they do, at least in Los Angeles, California, Los Angeles County, was because our uh, election cycle was off the federal cycle. So very few people showed up, and the unions could dominate um, the polls. Uh, with us going back to another system, they, they, I think that it will, it will lessen some of their power, but it will not eliminate it. Um, and, and in any system that you're going to have, you're going to have some folks who are corrupt and are using the system for their own purposes, and we have to battle that anyway. Um, but I would not go so far as to say the, that, that the union model is in and of itself the problem. It's the way, it's, the way it is operating. That is indeed a problem that we need to address. I'd love if I may. Um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting response. And I'm sorry about my microphone. I don't know. I probably checked you guys out about 25% of the way in, so I spared you a load of the detail. But um, it's, it's always tempting to say that when my ideas fail, it's not a systemic problem. It's just some unique feature. It's like when I was a commie, we always talked about the fact that the Soviet Union isn't a good example of communism. Well, how about North Korea? Also bad. How about China? Woo. Cuba? Terrible. What do you like? Uh, I don't know, Sweden, France, you know, hardly communist, am I right? Um, and so there's always an exception made when the system that's in place is my system. I love the fact that you, I agree with you, I think the anthropological problem in, you know, humanity is we're, we're you know, I, I, I'm a Catholic kid, um, we're broken, we're fallen, 
we're sinful, whatever language you like. We are human, in short, and we are all tempted by various you know, character flaws or whatever. So, yes, I agree that people are a problem, but in California, you have a raft of laws, which are you know, well documented in here, that are a part of a system that is created by this union power. And some of the laws that are not in here that need reforming, and we could talk about those, are the laws that have propped up union power. I'll give you a quick example of this. The Janus decision is a decision by the Supreme Court on June 27, 2018, and it says, it is a violation of the First Amendment when state and local governments require their employees to join a union, right? It's a violation of the Constitution, their civil rights. When you tell a teacher, hey, you have to join the California Teachers Association, you have no choice or you can't teach in our public schools. The Supreme Court rightly said that's a violation of that person's First Amendment rights of assembly, you know, who you can choose to be with, and speech, because the union's going to take your cash and it's going to use it to speak, if you will, lobbying, actual speaking, organizing. It's going to use your money to do things that are overtly political. So that's the Supreme Court, June 27, 2018. That same day, June 27, 2018, Jerry Brown signs a, a sort of a, you know, under the radar kind of bill called Senate Bill. 866. Senate Bill 866 says no government official can say anything that will disparage a government union. You can't deter or discourage membership in a government union. That's the law in California. If you're elected a mayor, a city council member, a school board official, you can't say something about government unions like the stuff I just said. That can get you a civil suit in California if I was a public official making that statement. It's against the law. So we used a violation of free speech in California to fight the constitutional rights of all Americans. I could go on. There's mandatory union orientation for every public employee. The first day on the job, you show up, there's a document that says, I'm a part of the union. Still in place. We have laws which says if you have any dispute with the union, it's referred to a group called the Public Employee Retirement Board, or PERB. You may have heard of this. Who's that made up of? Union members. You're being judged by union members on whether your union treated you badly. That's the law in California. It is a system, and it needs to be extirpated like slavery was. I don't mean to compare with the system we live in with slavery. I am not saying that. I am saying that it's authoritarian, and you cannot change. Some of the, the great observations in here about pension reform, the first people you got to clear pension reform with, the teachers, the, the firefighters, the cops. And I'm telling you from my story, I gave you the example. It's not going to happen in Sacramento, my friends. Um, I won't go through all of these, but you want to expand it? You want to stop? Please. Sorry. Uh, well I done. Wanna, I, wanna, I, 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 Sorry. I do want to bring Mary in, particularly in terms of, I mean, as you, as you say, the study you've been doing out there and stuff like that, and there is a kind of a massive indifference to poverty. I mean, yeah. people get upset about homelessness because it's, you know, they don't want a tent in front of their house or whatever, something like that as long as it's off to the side, like that. And it, and it is the fact because it's perceived as being, poor people are being perceived as communities of color even though the whites make up a huge number of it. And there's an indifference to the plight of, of communities of color generally. What can, what can we do in terms of mobilizing forces to make change? We might all disagree on the, what the yeah. changes are, but how do we, how do, we yeah. do something to make change? I think overall within California and throughout the United States, frankly, we make it really hard on low-income families to really get ahead, right, in terms of not only just the barriers with public assistance, but also with the wages and how we've talked about how flat 
median household earnings has been over the past couple of decades is that some of these families just simply don't earn enough to make ends meet. So, um, you know, California, United Way is a big champion of the earned income tax credit. And even with that, we see up to over a billion dollars goes unclaimed each and every year in helping these families move up. So, and we also make it hard to, for families in general to access types of public benefits. So, for example, if one family um, qualify, is uh, qualified for public assistance and they leave the county because of the high cost of counting, high cost of housing in LA County, and they go to San Bernardino and Riverside because housing costs are lower, they have to reapply for those public benefits. So, what are some of the things that we can do collectively in terms of making it easier for families to, to make ends meet? So many of these families below the real cost measure are often two to three paychecks away from becoming homeless themselves. So I think we need to think more about some of the prevention strategies that often don't go mentioned in terms of what we can actually do to help families becoming homeless, in terms of what we can actually do to help them making sure that they pay their rent on time. So I, I saw lots of nodding heads when Michael was summarizing the recommendations, but I think there's a lot of frustration in terms of the political attainability in terms of what we can, what we can do. And I don't have the magical answers. I don't think one person in, the, in this room does. Uh, but I think collectively, I think if we could continue to raise the issues of inequality and homelessness, I think we can move the needle on some things. Great. Uh, I'm sure we've got some questions out in the audience. I see one hand already. All right, well, why don't you start off and we'll go there. And I've got a couple more follow-ups as well. Hello, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the panel discussion. My name is Rahab Smith, and I'm really happy to be here. I was an intern at the Cato Institute many years ago, and I was a graduate student in Boston. It was a wonderful experience. You know, what I'd like to share is a little bit of um, a personal perspective. Um, when I was in graduate school in Massachusetts, I was studying economics, and um, one of my professors one time um, said that he often tells his undergraduate class that if you want to major in philosophy, minor in accounting, <laughs> because you're going to need a job when you graduate. And at the time, I thought it was a funny thing to say, but it stuck with me because I grew up in the Middle East and I majored in math, and that was just my upbringing. And in a way, it was the culture that you, you, know, you study these hard sciences to get the stable job. <laughs> and, um, you know, I speak, I speak to youth, sort of in my circle of friends and family. Um, and I see their aspirations, and I tell them, uh, but why don't you look at what the market is rewarding today? Uh, we live, you know, in a modern economy where, you know, specialized skills have become uh, very valuable. Now, if you graduate with a degree in engineering or math, you're almost guaranteed $100,000 as a starting salary, and that's very good for a 23-year-old. You know, so I sometimes wonder if there's a disconnect between the aspirations of our youth and really what the market is rewarding, and, and how do you kind of start, start off on the right foot and get ahead and uplift your family. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Let me, let me follow up with a, with a question on that, because one of the things in terms of education that we see is that so many Californian students don't seem prepared yep. for careers when they, when they get out. And uh, 
there's a lot of reasons historically. It's certainly minority community, the, the schools systems and in, in inner cities are not doing a great job of preparing students. But kind of across the state, we found that the, everywhere was a problem with that. What, you know, the things we can do in terms of changing the education system to, to better prepare students for when they get out, because they are going to get out. And as I say, you know, how do we get people to do that? Anybody? Yeah, uh, Go ahead. I'll just start by saying that you know one of the things the ambassador said was that we don't invest in education, and I agree in a broad sense that we we don't invest in education. But it's not a dollars question. We spend somewhere north of twenty thousand dollars per student in California for public education outcomes that are among the worst in the country, even though we're near the highest in terms of spending. Um, and again, uh, you ask, you know, why are, why are low-income communities? My organization, the California Policy Center, we, we have a project called the Parent Union, and the whole goal is to go into low-income communities and teach parents how the education system works so that they can achieve within this very straight-jacketed system where there's very limited school choice, how they can achieve better outcomes for their children. Uh, frequently, we end up recommending they simply go to charter schools. That's the best available alternative in California. My organization, Full Disclosure, is behind an initiative that would create an education savings account. If we're trying to get it through a separate organization qualified for the 2022 ballot. And that would basically put somewhere in the neighborhood of thirteen dollars or $14,000 per year into a debit card kind of account so that yeah. parents in low-income communities, that's where the project starts, first four years are low-income only. And then it opens up to a broader audience. But for the first four years, it's low-income parents only. And that gives them the kind of, uh, I think they call this in economics, effective demand. It's not enough to want a thing. You've got to be able to make it effective. And so we give them this cash, which would otherwise go into a school system dominated by the teachers' union, which in L.A., uh, we had the union uh, president here, Cecily Myers Cruz, say, um, look, you know, uh, yeah, locking down our schools was terrible, but... Our kids have learned one thing during COVID. They know insurrection, and they know coup. Um, she said they wouldn't open the schools until they had critical race theory taught in every class, as if that's the problem of lousy education. They also are part of a movement to reduce mathematics courses for kids because math is racist. Um, they're, they're trying to address symptoms rather than causes. The, one last thing on this. The Vergara case, for those of you who know it, in Los Angeles County pitted poor kids against the teachers' union and district officials. Their whole claim was we're not getting a quality education. A California court determined you don't have a right to a quality education in California. We're not going to guarantee that. We'll give you government cheese equivalents of education, but you don't have any right to quality. That's the teachers' union at work, and if you want to reform education, school choice, you've got to deal with that beast. I will, I will say, if there's an actual school in, you know, that's teaching critical race theory, I, I, I've yet to meet it. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, I'm happy to show you. Be, be, because it's, it's an obscure legal theory that Derek Bell and others created. In, in a, in a, it's certainly, if they, if they can understand uh, critical race theory, then, they, then I'm not worried about their education. So. Uh, I'm happy to talk about this offline. It, sure. is in, it is built into, you don't have to call it critical race theory. I'm just, and I don't want to get derailed on this, but the point is, is rather addressing what our, our question was about math and science and courses that can sure. make a difference, or even preparing kids vocationally. I mean, you talk about an engineer getting 100 grand when they graduate from undergrad. That, that's likely true. You know who else makes 100 grand? A plumber. A guy who works in heating, air conditioning, and ventilation. Uh, construction trades are going begging right now for people who know how to do that kind of work. 
And we have, in our culture, denigrated that work. This is part of the Academy's project, is to denigrate labor, actual labor, and to favor the kinds of stuff that I majored in. You know, thank God there was a theology degree, <laughs> because I can't swing a... This is from swinging a hammer. You can't see it, but I nearly bled to death. I am not a, I am not a guy who's equipped for that. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things packed into that um, that we won't be able to address um, uh, here. But the fact of the matter is money does matter uh, in, the, uh, in, in the quality of the schools. Uh, prior to Prop 13, uh, the, the LA Unified School District was one of the best school districts in the country. Uh, afterwards, um, it dropped significantly. Um, uh, there a lot of the programs that you're talking about left the schools because there wasn't enough money for it. Um, and, and I remember listening to a radio program uh, about uh, Singapore, quite frankly. And uh, the reporter was asking the, uh, 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 the chief education uh, uh, person in Singapore, you know, how did you go from, in 30 years, from one of the most illiterate countries in Southeast Asia to one of the most literate countries in Southeast Asia? And she, uh, it, at the end of her question, she threw in, does it have something to do with your Asian culture? Hmm. And he was, you could tell over the radio that he was offended by that last comment. <laughs> He said, no, we are where we are because we spend more money on education than anybody else. Teachers are the highest paid professionals in our system. And that's why we have the outcomes that we have now. Um, I can't say that, you know, that, that the money that we're spending now is being spent properly, but the fact of the matter is we, have, we are not investing in our youth and certainly not investing in our youth of color. Yeah. So I, I, we could talk about this for a long time. Agreed. But yeah. I'm, sure we, I'm sure we will. <laughs> uh, I, okay, we got a couple more questions out there. I'm gonna take one up in the back, then yours, and yours, and then we, we really have to break here because we're going to, we've got to set for the governor, or for the mayor. Hi. Hi, my so name quick is... Quick answers. Quick oh, questions, hello. quick answers. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just have a quick comment because I actually am a LA... I'm an immigrant child. I came in 1976 and lived in Highland Park. And I actually went to LAUSD. Um, and then, you know, by a miracle of my mom, being a single mom, um, my, brother, my siblings and I made it. My kids uh, went to Malibu Unified School District, wow. and I took them out of school to homeschool them. So I just wanted to make a couple of comments, and I, I don't I, we know. Really, we really, we've got like three minutes before okay. I have okay, to Okay, I'll be quick. Um, I went to LAUC, and I thought it was the best education I ever got when I compare it to my children's. I had, they taught me how to balance a checkbook when I was in junior high. They taught me how to cook, cook food. And all of those programs are gone. I had a computer in 1978. I was in a gifted program. I had access to a computer that my mom's friends who were adults was asking me about. Like, what is this? A math computer. And we've taken all of that stuff out of our education system. So I don't, 
And what we're focused on now is AP classes. We're teaching kids to memorize and pass tests. We're not teaching them to think, which is why I think America is lacking in these other, other you know, job requirements because kids aren't thinking. They're graduating from great schools with 4.0 GPAs, but not, they're not thinkers. So anyway, I don't know how we solve that, but that's my observation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna have to <laughs> suggest that people take the, the questions. I'm sure our panelists will take to speak to folks individually. You can take your questions to them. We're gonna break right now. We have a reception outside. There'll be libations and stuff, and you can take them and you can <laughs> pin, our, pin our panelists down and ask, ask them all sorts of embarrassing questions or, or whatever it is you have for them. We're gonna try to come back in here in about 20 minutes if we can at about uh, 20 of and because uh, we want to have the, the, the mayor uh, come in and give us a talk and then we'll have lunch. So if you wouldn't mind just stepping out so we can set for lunch and, and appreciate it. Thank you all very much. Thank you to our panelists. Really, really appreciate you all being in here.